0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And Remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you something, people. Back east, the pollen has been through the air. I can hardly breathe this week. My voice is leaving me. And what's funny is, when I moved to L.A. years ago, when I lived in L.A., everyone said, there's so much fog in L.A., there's so much smog, you're not going to be able to breathe. And I'm going to tell you something. The quality of air in the last week in South Jersey, 10 minutes from Philadelphia, is... A lot worse than L.A. ever was. Anyway, we have a great show today. I'm, I'm very excited to have this guest. You know, back in the day when I when I did stand-up and I used to work the door at the Comedy Factory outlet, a lot of us young guys worked there because, one, we would get good stage time, but, two, we would get to see the masters of the craft. And this gentleman used to come in through there and play in Philadelphia, and he was always just so great to watch, and, and he's he's legendary. And he has a great book called Confessions of a Comedian, and my guest is Kip Adada. How you doing, Kip? Hi.
1: Good afternoon. Good.
0: On the phone? Yes. Good to uh, good to finally get to talk to you. I know we we I, we had a little miscommunication there, but it's good to have you on. And, and now, how, how's LA today? Is is the weather beautiful?
1: Well, the, the, the weather's cold here today, and uh, it, it's, uh, it's it's just the change in temperatures is like a drastic going so, do a forty-degree change from one day to the next. So, it's difficult to
0: keep one's health in shape. Right. So, so now you you came out with your book, Confessions of a Comedian, and what I've been seeing on your Facebook posts and and people have been loving it. What what made you decide that you were going to write a book? I mean, you've had a very long career. I mean, I believe you did the Tonight Show like twenty-one times. You did Mike Douglas like fifteen times. What made you decide that now was the time? for Kip Adada, legendary comedian, to write a book.
1: Well, uh, I wanted my story to be out there. I wanted uh, people to know where I came from, what I was about, uh, the serious and uh, side of me, and uh, the funny side of me. And, uh, and that's, that's why I thought it was time to write my autobiography. And it is available on Amazon, Kippa Dada, Confessions of a Comedian. And uh, people always have trouble spelling my name. Kippa's K I P is K-I-P as in Peter, and then Adada, A D D O T T A. Thank you. So now,
0: when you're going to write this book, when you start to write this book, Where do you start? Because you've had such a long career. What do you want to decide what you want to focus on? Like, what made you get into stand-up comedy? What was, I mean, why did you decide to do comedy? What was it that made you love the art of performing in front of people? I, uh, I
1: used to watch the comedians on Sullivan Show, and I thought, well, that was, that was just the greatest thing in the world. But uh, I never really thought that I could do it. I just enjoyed. Uh, I just enjoyed uh, 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 watching. Then uh, later on, I yes, sir. I'm here. Yeah. You were about to say something?
0: No, no. You said later on, you said you watched him on the, the Ed Sullivan show and then later on.
1: Well, later on, I uh, I was sitting in a bowling alley and uh, brooding over a schooner of beer and I, I called my wife And I said, let's have an adventure. And she says, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, I've always thought about becoming a comedian. Let's go to uh, Los Angeles and uh, have a go at it. And to my amazement, she said, let's do it. So we prepared. We put the three kids in the car and and took off for Los Angeles. Oh, wait, wait, wait. So what I... So, so you just
0: called her and on a whim. You said, "I'm going to do this." Yes, that's amazing. That is so cool. So, 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 what you're going to LA with three kids? What were you expecting?
1: I wasn't expecting anything. I was determined to make a go of this. So i uh, I got a job parking cars. And, uh, uh, at, at during the lunch hours and someone told me about this new comedy club that had opened up called the comedy store. And, uh, wife and I went there and w- watched the show and I began going there and doing the little five minute sets at 1am in the morning and, and, uh, gradually uh, slowly but surely uh, uh, wrote material that began to work and uh, 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 most of, uh, of my compatriots were doing one set a night I would do I would go to five different places a night and do sets because after all I've got a wife and three children to support, so I had to I had to do things as quickly as possible. <laughs> so who who were some of your uh, when
0: you were starting out? Like who was who was your group? Like who were some of the guys that you were with back then?
1: Oh wow, there's so many. David Brenner and uh, Steve Landisberg and uh, Steve Martin. And my favorite, Steve Martin, and uh, just all the guys, really, Bruce Baum, and uh, uh, we, we all worked out together.
0: So so you're working out with them, and now you said you're doing four or five sites a night. When did you start noticing that you were getting really good at this, And when and when did you sit there and say, okay, this is my destiny?
1: Well, I, uh, it wasn't really my destiny. It was my determination. I was determined to, uh, make this happen. And, uh, I, uh, got connected with with a management company and it turned out to be the most powerful management company in the world at that time. And, uh, And that was a stroke of luck because uh, they connected me with these uh, very well-known acts like Neil Sadaka and uh, the Carpenters and uh, uh, so on and so on and so on. Lou Rawls, uh, uh, Andy Williams, and I would tour with them. And... uh, and I would do television. I was, I was on the road constantly. Uh, and back in L.A. doing, doing television. If you, at that time, there were three networks and then syndication. And uh, over the years, I have done over 1,750 appearances on national and syndicated television. So, uh, one thing led to another, and one time I was working in Detroit, and uh, I was at the Hyatt Regency in Detroit. The place was packed, and uh, I got a call from a fellow who wanted me to do this new thing called a comedy club. I had never worked in a comedy club other than the comedy store, or there's no other other places to say. And, and uh, uh, thanks to uh, thanks to uh, sure deals, my manager would make, I made very, very good money at that. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure where you want to go with this interview, Steve, but wherever it is, that's where I want to be.
0: Yeah, well, I, I want to talk about your career because it's fascinating. And because, I, I, I mean, you, you're, you've you been around and you've worked so much and you were in the, you know, you said you got into the comedy clubs. I want to hear about your first inter, your first time on The Tonight Show because, you know, that was such a big thing back then. A lot of young comics don't understand. As you said, there was three networks. You know, I remember as a kid, you see someone on The Tonight Show. I remember Tom Dreeson told me he was living in his car and he was on The Tonight Show. Next day, he was just booked. How did your first Tonight Show come up, and were you really nervous, or were
1: you just excited? Well, I was, first of all, terribly nervous. Uh, if, uh, but, but prepared, I was ready for it, and uh, I think mean that NBC could have been, could have burned down while I was doing my seven minute set, and I would have finished the set. Uh-huh. That's how, how much journaling I had flowing. And when the set was over, one uh, of the producers, Jim McCauley, came over to me and he said, have you got any more material like that? And I said, yes, I do. So there, there it began. Mm-hmm. And there was, after, uh, it was in, the, in the end, I had done 32 Tonight Shows. Now,
0: that's so much material. I know you were doing like four or five a year. How long would they give you to get ready for your next appearance? And how, how much would you work that material out?
1: Well, I would work it out uh, uh, demonically. Uh, it had to be perfect. I had to be sure. I didn't want, I, I take no chances. Uh, I had a old observation that I used to do. I would ask, "Do you know how many comedians were in the United States when I started?" And there were thirty. And uh, you know how many there are now? Thirty.
0: So you're doing it, now, now did you get to know Johnny when you were doing the show, or was it just something you would go on and do it?
1: Uh, no, he, he was, he, no, he he was very uh, 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 hard to get to know, and and I didn't force the issue. Uh, that's the way he wanted to, it to be, and that's the way it was. We weren't we were pals. He wasn't pals with anyone.
0: Now... You also did the Hollywood Squares a few times a day and a night. What is that like? Did they just approach you and say, hey, Kip, we want you on there because people know your face and name? Or what is that like doing a game show when you're a comedian and you're used to being in control of the stage and the crowd?
1: Yeah, that was a tough one. I got that because I had a feature article in uh, People Magazine. And uh, uh, so Scott Sternberg... uh, producer of the show at the time, called me and asked me on. Um, I didn't really understand that the jokes that uh, the people in the squares were doing were written for them. I didn't, uh, uh, you know, the host would say, okay, we've got a or when the contestant would say, Paul wins, and all right, and uh, would pull out a, a card with a Paul Lind question on it, especially made for Paul Lind. so that was all set up in advance. And uh, uh, I just wasn't very good at it. I did it, I did it four or five times, never really uh, scored big.
0: Now, now you you know you, you were opening for the, the Sadaka and all those acts, and then you said you went to the comedy clubs. What was the transition like at that time to comedy clubs? And how many were there when you when you first started working the clubs? How many comedy clubs were there? There probably wasn't a lot. Well, one in Detroit, one in
1: Cleveland, uh, and, uh, uh, and the ones in Los Angeles, and that's about it. And there was the Improv in uh, New York. But uh, there were there weren't many of them, but that's okay. I was I was uh, working uh, with these big acts uh, and, and doing uh, stadiums and uh, uh, working to fifteen thousand people, and, and then working. It really doesn't matter to me how many people there hundred or fifteen thousand. It doesn't matter.
0: Now, as a comic, though, because we all depend on our timing and that the laughter—you know, because laughter goes on and you get applaud breaks. When you compare it to playing in front of two hundred people to fifteen thousand people, when a joke kills, it must really kill. And how is a comic? Do you adjust that for your timing? Because the laughter must just swell and swell.
1: Well, when you get, you're, you're absolutely right, Steve. Uh, when you have a large audience, what would be 10 minutes of material in a smaller venue turns out to be a half hour's worth of material in a large venue because of the, the long rolling laughs. Yeah, and you have to time yourself, To Woody Allen says, comedians don't have timing. The audience just determines the timing.
0: <laughs> That's true, though. <laughs> You're right. You always see these acts who say, hey, I have 30 minutes. I remember I work with these kids. I got 30 minutes. Then they go on stage and they bomb, and they have seven minutes. And you go, yeah, right." you don't have 30 minutes until you sit there and you know when it's complete silence, you can do 30 minutes. So what was the life like on the road back then? I mean, it was probably different. Comedy was, you know, it wasn't as PC now. People were going out. They were having fun. They were drinking. They were watching shows. What was it like being on the the forefront of the comedy clubs? I mean, it must have been an amazing experience.
1: Well, uh, it's amazing. It's dangerous. It's exciting. It's... You know, as I recount in the book, uh, I I've been shot at three
0: times while I was on stage. No, 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 on stage. Uh, Wait, you were shot at on stage. Yes, sir. Okay, you got. You just tell. I know it's in the book, but just tell me one of those stories because that I would, I would, I would never get back on stage again.
1: Well, when you have uh, an audience. Uh, men and women, and you have liquor and uh, cocaine, and uh, in their systems. And uh, here I am on stage, looking good. Spook <laughs> me.
0: were known for your Dr. Demento, your songs. When did you decide to do the songs? Did you, did you think they would become so popular?
1: I, I didn't think they would become so popular, but I... I, uh, My first one, Wet Dream, uh, was drug. I got the idea from the movie Jaws, and I used to do a joke about it, because uh, I would say... Why is it every time they cut a shark open, they always find a license plate in its stomach? Right. Well, who are these people that drive into the ocean and park near a shark? <laughs> so, I started writing this thing. It took me six months to write, and uh, uh, I sent it to a. Uh, I sent a cassette of it to a radio station in. Uh, WMJI in Cleveland and uh, they John Lanigan was the host of the show and he put it on the air and it became the most requested song in a five state area so that uh, participated a, uh, uh, a record deal came so I got a record deal and and uh, then I came out with uh, life in the Slaw Lane, uh, a Ray- Raymond Chandler-esque thing using, uh, again, the calculated props, which people refer to as puns, but they're not actually puns. Anyway, uh, I've got four, four or five albums out. I've got... I had... Uh, three top ten hits, and uh, and 14 songs in, in all and uh, eight, eight hours of stage time well, I so hear- it was a lot of a lot of writing but oh, I this is the first book I've ever written totally different exercise.
0: Yeah, what is it different? Because you wrote, you know, you've written songs, you've written comedy. When you write a book, it's more your story. You know, you already know you're a good comedy writer. You already know your songs are popular. When you sit there and, and have to look at writing a book, how do you pull your the your natural funniness away from there so you can write a story, which you want to be funny because you're a funny person, because you're a good comedy writer, but you don't want to yeah. be a joke. Like a joke book, how do you find? How did you find your voice for this book?
1: When you begin to tell the story. I began my story at the age of eighteen months. I uh, memories of my mom, and uh, I just took it from there. And the story tells itself once you get it in chronological order. The story tells itself; it writes itself. The the, the uh, secret is to be honest.
0: Now, we, you talked earlier about your songs and they were popular. When you would perform them on stage, how did you expect the crowd to react because the people already knew those songs? It's not like when you do material and it's fresh because you change up your material a lot and you go on and the crowd is doesn't know what to expect. Is it harder to do a song that is funny that people have already heard before or is it almost like that rock star feeling
1: well, what, uh, it's, a, it's a good question what i would do i would do the song the like wet dream i would do that without music and i was like in the song. i would do that without music it, it, it's not necessary to have the music uh, uh you just do the, the, the story so that's how i did it in clubs and then after a while, I would do, uh, I would bring uh, 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 music tracks with me and do the music tracks, and I would have backup singers too to do the bridges. Uh, so whatever, okay. you know, whatever my whim was, actually, uh, I did, I did. It, but uh, but I, I say whim, and at the same time, I I wanted to do these things in the best way possible.
0: Now, throughout your career, you did a little bit of acting, but did you ever want to really transition into acting, or were you a stand-up at heart, and that was your craft,
1: and that's what you loved? Yeah, that's... That's uh, uh, certainly a lot more fun. Acting is a boring profession. There's a lot of waiting around. uh, Acting's not the deal for me. Now, now when you when you were touring
0: the comedy clubs you were around when the explosion of comedy started where there's comedy everywhere what was that feeling for you because you had been there from the beginning did you feel that it was the crowds were better or did you feel that they were just coming out to see comedy uh, they, they were coming out to see comedy
1: They all of a sudden uh, uh, although they've been watching it for decades on I mean, the Johnny Carson show, all of a sudden comedy became this new thing that everyone wanted to see, and uh, uh, that was uh, to my advantage.
0: Now, what were some of your favorite cities to play? As I said, I remember you played the Comedy Factory out in Philadelphia. I worked the door at that club owned by Clay Heary, and you used to come in, and we would always, as said, me and my friend Steve Thomas worked the door, or we'd seat people, and we always loved to watch you and other people who were just great comics, because we, we could learn. What were some of your favorite cities? Did you love, did you like playing Philadelphia? I loved
1: to, but I, you see, uh, there's a little scene uh, And I think I'm the one that said it. I don't play the room. I play the people. It doesn't matter to me where the room is. An audience is an audience. And uh, if you think that uh, audiences are smarter in one place than they are in the other, you'd be wrong. People are pretty hip.
0: Now, how often were you writing when you were on the road? Did you constantly write? and Were you always popping in a new... Bit in your act, or how did you mix into your new material?
1: Well, uh, everything new, and that's another very good question, any new joke I put first, I'd give it the toughest slot in the act. The opening joke would be the new joke. Because I knew if it worked there, uh, once I put it into into a uh, piece, that it would, it would definitely work. But so that's the way I... I worked it. If I had a new joke, it would be the first thing out of my mouth on stage. And by the way, in in my book, uh, Confessions of the Comedian, there's a whole—the last four chapters are all about uh, stagecraft: how to use the microphone, how to where to stand on the stage. Uh, For instance, if you're a lot of. People that are very nervous on stage, they, they they choke up on the stage. In other words, they go right out to the edge of the of the stage and work. Well, that's wrong because that makes the audience up front have to look up, crane their neck up to look at what's going on. You don't want them. You want them comfortable so that they can, they can react to the material. But There's a thousand things. They're all, they're all in the book. Steve, there are no small matters. Everything is important.
0: Now I know. Now, now, when did you feel that you started mastering the craft of the stage? When did you feel that you were the king? I mean, when you had that full confidence that you just, you know, and you found your voice. How long did it take you to, to for that to happen? Well, uh,
1: to be honest with you, Steve, it never stopped happening. Uh, I had an interview one time uh, Buddy Hackett was uh, appearing in at the Maryland Theater in Chicago and he was kind enough to let me backstage was asking some stupid questions but at that time he said at that time when he was the highest paid entertainer in the world he told me that six months before that, you still didn't know how to walk. You're constantly learning new things, and and you incorporate them, and in, 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 there's, you know, even if you become state of the art, there's still room to grow.
0: Now, I saw you posted on Facebook, uh, I think you'd reply to someone's comment, that you retired. Now, I always hear entertainers never retire. We always end up going back to it. Have you retired?
1: I have retired and am retired and will remain retired. If I never get on another airplane, it'll be too soon <laughs> for me.
0: When when did you retire and was there a, 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 this, a certain thing that made you decide to retire?
1: Uh, I, I'm not sure. I did it about eight years ago. I just I just said, you know, enough of this travel. I want to be home. I want to enjoy my family. I want, I want to have a, a normal life for the first time in my life. You know, I was on, I had my own apartment when I was 15. Uh, so I've always been a, a worker bee, and I've I worked enough. I've saved enough so that I don't have to, uh, I don't have to travel. And you know, there's another old saying that all oh, performers have to perform. That's not true. I don't have
0: to perform. Right. <laughs> now, looking back at your career, what would you say were your three if, in your eyes? And it could be something small. It could be something big. What would you say if you can pick three? What were your three biggest accomplishments in your stand-up career? In for you not for people recognizing you or stuff like that but for you personally what are your three biggest accomplishments
1: mm, no, that's a uh, I I I can't answer that my my finest accompli- accomplishment is raising my family that's the one I'm most proud of uh, professional accomplishments. Uh, I mean, it's not like a, I did. I did win once the comedian of the year award, but uh, it's just it's a tough thing to say. I. I uh, I'm still, as we speak, I'm still working and creating and writing things. Uh, so, you know, as long as I'm still kicking, I'm, I'm going to be evolving.
0: Well, see, that's great. That means you know, that means you've had such a good career. That you can't narrow it down to three things. A lot of people you ask them, and they go this, this, this. That means you've done so much in your career that you can't pinpoint something, and that says a lot for you and your success. Now, now in the in, back in the day, would you get recognized a lot, like after a Tonight Show or after after the uh, you know being on TV? Because you, so many people saw you. Were you recognized a lot? Um,
1: yeah. <laughs> Mostly when I would be in my car, framed by the the frame of the window and the, <laughs> I had a frame around my face people would recognize me.
0: <laughs> okay, well, you know what? I want to thank you for taking the time today. Tell me a little more about your book before we go. Tell people where they can get it. Tell people, you know, what they can expect to read and is there is there a message in your book? Well, uh, the
1: uh, book is available on Amazon. It's Kipadatta.com Confessions of a Comedian, and it's the story of my life, both personal and professional. And uh, I hope they enjoy it. So far, people seem to be enjoying it. It's not a ponderous book. It's an easy read. And uh, like I say, if, if, if the audience likes it, then I'm happy with it.
0: Well, I think it's great that you're actually also talking about the stage crap because, you know, you're bringing in what you know and you're someone who's done it. And I think that's such a great added. That's like so much of a bonus. Like someone, when they get your book, is like buying two books, sort of. Well, uh, it's tough to read a
1: book. I mean, my lady love reads a, a large book every day and a half. But a lot of people don't read anymore. But they're reading my book because, as i say it's not ponderous. And we've got an audio book up to be coming out soon. So that, that will be up. So it's on Amazon. It's Kipadata, Confessions of a Comedian. And it's not expensive. Right? Because I, want, I, I want it to be uh, available to a wide range of people.
0: I love the fact that also I saw on Facebook, if someone sends you it in a self-addressed stamp envelope, no, you, if someone sends you a self-addressed stamp envelope, you'll give an autograph and they can glue it on their book, right?
1: I have a, a process that I can autograph their book, yes. Well, that's awesome. And I'm happy, happy to do so.
0: Great. Well, you know, I want to thank you, Kit. Now, now your, your website is uh, com. You're on Facebook. And, uh, people, please go check him out. Go look on, you know, look at his old work. He has a bunch of CDs out. He has uh, he has rare footage on his website you can get live from Maximum Security. So, please, people, if you love comedy, and if if, if you just want to find out about comedy, go buy his book. Find out from a legend. People, go check out Kepedada. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find uh, 680 episodes. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at Coopertalk, and don't forget my other website, StopTheSalt.com. Remember when I had that heart scare a few years ago? That was six years ago almost. I wrote a cookbook, 120 low-sodium recipes, easy to make, no pictures to intimidate you. Go buy the book. You can get it at Amazon. But you can get it at, st- at StopTheSalt.com, and I'll sign it, and you'll make more money. So, people, please check out Dada. He's a comedy legend. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.